All right, so Philippians chapter 2, and we've been looking at this great theme and subject of humility. We got into the first four verses last Sunday when we kind of really looked at the importance of, um, you know, looking to serve others, looking to have that mind here of humility. The whole theme of this chapter has been the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind or the humble mind. And throughout our, our study through Philippians, we're looking at, you know, joy. That's the overall theme of joy. And we're looking at the different things that can rob us of joy. In chapter one, it was different circumstances. And, and the secret of joy, in spite of circumstances, that single mind for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 21. Here now in chapter two, we're looking at different people and how... <laughs> Yes, people could potentially rob you of joy if you're not walking in a way where your desire is to serve others, having that submissive, humble mind. So really in this chapter, we're talking a lot about humility. I've learned a lot about humility in the last little bit. In fact, I'm going to be writing a book on it titled uh, The Ten Most Humble People in the World That I Know and Why I Chose the Other Nine. Um, it's the working title right now. It's just in the works here. The original title was going to be Humility and How I Attained It. But, you know, uh, that's the thing of humility. Once you think you've got it, you've lost it, right? It is very elusive. And so uh, that's not the humility that we want to be looking at and talking about. But here in chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we're going to be looking at this incredible example of humility. And it's found in no other than Jesus Christ. Jesus lays out for us an incredible, awesome picture and example and demonstration of humility. In this chapter, we've been looking at so far just various exhortations and examples of the right kind of humble and submissive mind. We saw in the first four verses last week the exhortation to humility as Paul exhorted us here now to let nothing be done through selfish ambition, let each esteem others better than himself. Here now in verses 5 to 11, today we're going to look at the example of humility. Next week we'll finish up the chapter, Lord willing, looking at the exercise of humility and the expression of humility through Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two guys that are partnering with Paul there. So that's kind of what we're looking at, the, the, the outline of our chapter. But this example of humility is going to be seen, first of all, in this mind of Christ. We're going to look in verses 5 to 8 at the mind of Christ, but then we shift in verse 9 to look at the mind of God ultimately. And so this mind of Christ to begin with, look at verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So as we've been looking at this mind of submissiveness and humility, this is that mind that considers others better than yourself, right? A mind and an attitude that looks out for the interests of others above your own interests. Now, that's a pretty wonderful thing, isn't it? When you're around people, you're in a group of people, and everybody's got that mind where your desire is just to bless others. To look at others better, isn't it fun to hang out with those kinds of people, right? We love that, but that's not typically what we see oftentimes happening. That's not certainly what's typical of just human nature. This isn't something that comes naturally to us. You see, we're all born as sinners. 
We're born into sin, and this is not the natural expression that we have of walking in humility and looking to bless others in and above ourselves. Just take a couple toddlers, for instance, right? You put two toddlers in a room with one toy in between them, and guess what's gonna happen? There's gonna be World War III, there's fireworks going off, they're gonna be taking that toy. They're not, they're not sitting here going, oh, no, you have first go. You go ahead and take it. They're like, grab mine, and they're beating the other on the head with it, right? They're not playing in a way of humility and looking to serve others. That's just human nature, of course. And so this mind here that Paul begins to lay out for us is something that we have to let have its way on us and to put that above and over our more natural way or our more natural instinct and inclination. That's why Paul says, let this mind be in you. All throughout scripture, you're going to see, you know, the, this kind of exhortation to put off and put on. In other words, it's putting off the things that are part of that old nature, the old self, the way that we were before we put our faith in Christ. Those are things that we're to put off, but we're to put on that which is now new, that which is of Christ and in Christ. Romans 14 verse 13 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the things that are of Christ. That's why Paul says here, listen, these are things that aren't going to be natural for you, but here's what you can do. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Let this happen. Submit to it. Yield to it. Say, when I'm leaning on my own desires or my own interests, that's part of the old nature. I got to put that off. I got to let that mind have its way and work in me and through me now. It's submitting to it and yielding to it. And we have this incredible now example of what this mind of Christ looks like. It's not just Paul's just leaving it out there to kind of be open-ended to say, well, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. And we're all saying, well, what does that look like? Paul gives us some wonderful descriptions and, and we're, we're kind of soaring up to the mountaintops of scripture here when we look at just the beauty of Paul's expression in this Christology here, this, this doctrine of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. These are some beautiful passages that we're looking at here today in God's word. Now it says there in verse six, who being in the form of God, so first of all, we see that Jesus came is in the form of God. Now, that's an interesting term. It doesn't mean that he took on the, the shape of God or that he just kind of resembled him. When you hear that word form, it seems like something that Jesus became that was something that he wasn't before. He didn't take on the form. See, understand, being in the form of God means simply that he was God and Jesus has always been God. This is something that hasn't changed from. The Greek word for form is the word morphe. Morphe. And again, you might look at that and go, well, does that mean he kind of morphed into this later on down the road that he kind of became this? No, he's always been God. He's taken on this form of God. Let me break it down for you a bit because our English words can really do injustice to the Greek language of the New Testament, right? Because the Greek language, they can take a, a word or, you know, English word, but then the Greek has got like two or three different words that can be describing it, right? That not only break it down in a kind of synonymous way, but oftentimes altering the very meaning of it. You look at the word love. We have one word, love. 
We use love across the board. You love your, your spouse. You love a good bowl of ice cream. It's like those two don't quite compare. They shouldn't compare, right? But we use the same word. But in the Greek, there's like four different words for that one word love that we have in our English language. And so too with this word form, there's two different Greek words that are used that kind of have a little bit of a different meaning. So this word as used here in the form of God, it's the Greek word morphe, but there's also the Greek word schema that's used now uh, in the Greek. In using the term morphe, Paul is stating that Jesus was revealing his inmost nature through his outward expression. His inmost nature never changes, and it is what Jesus consistently expresses. So he's in the form of God. It's his inward nature. This has always been who Jesus is, and that doesn't change just in the fact that he's come down to this world. He's always had that inmost nature of being God, and it's being expressed in the outward. But schema meant an outward form that did change from time to time. An outward form that does change from time to time. You look at, at us as humans. Our, our um, morphe is humanity. That doesn't change for us, right? We're humans. We have humanity that we're clothed in. That doesn't change. But our schema certainly changes. When you're born, you're just a little baby. You become a toddler. Then you become a teen. And then you become an adult. And then middle-aged senior and then the schema really changes after that but um it, it changes you see right but the morphe stays the same so paul is stating something very important here for us jesus never ceased being god jesus has always been god and that has never changed never will change he's fully god sometimes we think that when jesus came into this world that he kind of put aside that deity, or he kind of hit the pause button on being God. I'm here now as man, everybody. I was God at one time, but now I'm just like one of you. And it seems like we can get this idea that he's kind of put away that, but that hasn't happened. What Jesus did, he never gave up anything. Rather, he added to by adding humanity to him. And we're going to see that in verse 7. But so this being God, being in the form of God, being fully God was never in question for Jesus. Notice we read that there in verse 6. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now your translations might say something different. It might say that idea of clinging to. Now robbery likewise has a couple different meanings to the word in the Greek. It can mean a thing unlawfully seized, which we would think of as robbery. Rather than somebody's taking something that's not theirs unlawfully seized but that word robbery in the greek can also mean a treasure to be clutched to be grabbed and retained at all hazards or at all costs something to be held on to and of course that second meaning for us in the text that we're looking at here and in the context certainly seems to fit what we're seeing then is jesus did not see the need for him to cling on to to hold on to the rights of being God or to come to this world in a way where he needed to express I'm God in an, in an outward way. He didn't need to cling on to that, to grab a hold of that. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. See, Jesus didn't come in this world kind of playing this deity card, right? Like he doesn't show up in his world saying, hey, everybody, guess what? I'm God. Go get me a Coke because I'm God, right? 
Go do this for me because I'm God. He's not sitting there playing this God card, this deity card, and having everybody now bow down before him when he comes on in the scene. Everybody worship me because I'm God. He's not doing that. He's not, he's not needing to cling on to that. He's not needing to hold on to that. He's letting it go. He was willing to let go of this most important aspect of his nature. Keep in mind, he never laid aside the possession, but rather the promotion of the divine essence. He didn't need to come to this world seeking to be exalted as God or praised as God or worshiped as God when he came to this world the first time. Now, think about the things you might find yourself clinging to. Think about the things that we find ourselves grabbing onto by which we might find some kind of security, some kind of comfort in. And for us, it could be popularity or finances or relationships. And we might even justify some of those things as being important and necessary for us. And we cling on to these things by which we maybe find some sort of identity. But Jesus says, I'm willing to lay it all down. I'm willing to put it aside. I don't need to cling on to these things. I'm going to give that up. Of all the things that Jesus had and was, he was willing to lay it all aside in order to take on this most important and needed quality of humanity. To do something not for himself, but for you and for me. That's what Jesus did. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus had it all. And he gave that up to come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. To identify with us that he could pay the ultimate price for our salvation. He became poor that we might become rich. Notice here in verse 7. And he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, when Jesus came into the world as one of us, it says he made himself of no reputation, or as it's more accurately translated, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He didn't, again, like I say, seek to be known, to be praised, to have the accolades given to him. He made himself no reputation. He, he literally emptied himself. And that's where we get the term that some of you might be familiar with in this passage where it's known as the kenosis passage or the kenosis theory. It, it comes from the, the word here where he emptied himself or he made himself of no reputation. Made is the word kino, meaning to empty. But the question is, what did Jesus empty himself of? What did Jesus empty himself of? Some say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. But we've already covered that, right? He's never ceased to be God or to maintain that deity. Some say he emptied himself of the, the, the very attributes of God. But that's not true. He never halted his divinity or stopped being God while on earth. Rather, here's what he did. He emptied himself of the prerogatives and the privileges of his deity. He emptied himself of the very rights by which he could claim to be God and use that. He, he removed himself from the prerogatives and the privileges of his deity. And he lived as one of us. 
and he took on. He took on shame. He took on rejection. He didn't have to do that. But he came and walked in, in our shoes, our sandals, his sandals, I should say. He came and walked that path that we walked to experience what we experienced. He put all those things aside. Now again, it's known as the kenosis theory or passage, and it's not correct because many say this is where Jesus you know, gave up his Godhead. That's not true. That's not what, what we're seeing here in the Word. He never let that go, but he gave up the prerogatives and the privileges of those things. Made himself an orientation, emptied himself. And how did he empty himself fully? How did he give up these things? He took on, as it says, the form of a bondservant. See, he didn't just come as one of us. He comes as a servant, and not just as a servant, but as a bondservant, the lowest position you could have, a slave. He took the lowest position as he came to this world. Again, this is the mind that we're to have, Paul's saying. This is the example that is being set before us. He emptied himself by taking on something that he had never had before, humanity. And the amazing thing is that he didn't just come as a human, he came as a suffering servant. He gave up everything. He came to surrender himself and give himself for the salvation of humanity. When you think back to what Paul said earlier, to look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others, and, and you look around and feel a lack of motivation to do that because you can all experience it. You can look around and go, what, you want me to serve that person? I don't know if they're worthy of that. They're not very nice to me. I don't know if I want to serve them. And you look at things and find a lack of motivation. I don't know if I really want to humble myself to that degree. But let the example of Jesus motivate you. Who could have come in a different way. Who could have come as one of us as a, as a king. And said, hey everybody, here's the way to follow. He doesn't come as a, a king the first time. He comes as a suffering servant. And he says, follow me. He's willing to, to take that position of the lowest slave. And he modeled that when he, at the last supper, washed his disciples' feet. Again, to wash feet. That was the position of the, the lowest slave of the house. Jesus took that. He said, as I've done to you, you do to others. That's what he's modeling for us. It takes the form of a bondservant. Let what Jesus did for you be motivation to do that to others. To serve in that same way. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So Jesus became a bondservant, and he came in the likeness of men. Now we look at this, and, and, and we don't really find too much bad about that. It's like, came in the likeness of men. Hey, not bad. I mean, we're all, we're all living it. Doesn't sound too unreasonable to me, but think about what he's been or what he's seen mankind do. How, how mankind has walked in just depravity. How they've walked in rejection and disobedience to God, unfaithfulness to God. How they've mistreated one another. And Jesus comes and he comes in the likeness of men. He's seen them at their worst. And he had to take that on. Take on humanity. It'd be like if you were called to save the slug species. You'd think, can I just send an audible? Can I just call out to them and say, hey guys, here's the way. 
But then to say, no, you got to be a slug to save the slugs. That would be like, wait a second. That's taking that to a whole new level. I don't want to do that. I was out weeding in my, my yard the other day, and I, it was kind of nighttime. I couldn't see, and I was grabbing some weeds to pull it, and I just grabbed a slug, and I squeezed that thing. didn't realize it. Not fun. Not good, right? They're not pleasant. But to imagine if you had to be that. And yet Jesus, we look at him and go, oh, no big deal. Took on humanity. This is so foreign to God. And he took that on himself. It didn't matter if he was mistreated because his attitude, Jesus' attitude was that of simply serving his heavenly father. Making his heavenly father known. Now, to come in the likeness of men does not mean he came in the exactness of men. Some people like to think that, you know, when Jesus came in this world, he had, you know, uh, humanity in the sense of sinful humanity, that, that he was, you know, tempted to the degree he could have sinned, and uh, he was dealing with that sinful nature. No, I don't believe Jesus at all had that sinful nature. He was f- still fully God. He never gave up the fullness of the holiness of the Godhead. Christ's position, F.F. Bruce says, Christ's possession of the fullness of the Godhead was not impaired by his self-emptying, nor when he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant did he exist any less, any the less, in the form of God. Although the divine glory was veiled, except to those who had eyes to discern it, never was the very nature of God more fully manifested on earth than in him who wore the servant's form. What a blessing that Jesus came this way. And lived that life to our, our benefit. And, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, listen, walking in humility, that, that can be something that we'll look at and go, oh, no big deal, walk in humility, when things are convenient, when things are kind of nice for us. There's ways that we can find ourselves being humble and doing so almost to our benefit, in a sense, right? Somebody pats you on the back, oh, you're so humble. Oh, you know, shucks, no, I'm not, you know. And, 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 and we can do things in a way where it's convenient or easy, but it's another thing altogether to, to live that life of humility or service when it costs you something. Look at the example of Jesus, who humbled himself, it says, to the point of death. It cost something for Jesus to come and live this way. And not just any death, he died the most shameful death of all, crucifixion. Romans had perfected this this art of execution that was to be the most painful and excruciating experience you could ever endure. It was to instill such fear into anyone going against Rome. It was so awful that Roman citizens were not permitted to be crucified. And Paul emphasizes this. It's like he didn't just come and die. He came and he died even to the point of the cross. Even the death of the cross, he says. Paul emphasizes that this wasn't just a normal death. It wasn't just Jesus kind of slipping into a nice, you know, peaceful sleep where he says, my work is done. I'm going to my father now. Good night. And he just, I think you would have done that. I would have been okay with that. But he went to the cross and he died the most awful, shameful, humiliating kind of death that was known to man. 
That's what Jesus did. I think sometimes we can kind of overlook this in a sense and think, well, Jesus was just God. He could endure that. He's God. It was nothing to him. And yet you recall what Jesus went through that night before he's crucified when he's in the garden and he's praying and with great sweat drops of blood in other words this was anxiety this was stress that was causing his his i can't remember the medical term what they are the capitulatory veins or what i don't know i'm making words up right now basically but you get the idea that, that was just causing things to burst through and blood to soak out through the pores this was a, a and not an easy thing. And, and remember, Jesus prays. If there be any other way, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He means the cup that would be tasting of the very judgment of God. Enduring the wrath of God for the sins of the world. If there be any other way that this can be accomplished for the salvation of humanity, let there be another way. Is there any other way that this can happen? Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew this was not going to be an easy journey. Jesus wasn't just God who just, you know, was able to not feel any pain. He felt every whip that went across his back, that broke his back wide open, that many people, under the, the scourging that would happen before the cross, people would, would die from that. Jesus endured that. He felt the nails going through his wrists and his feet. He experienced the very pain that came from this. He wasn't immune. He wasn't exempt from that because he's God. He went through that. So Paul emphasizes he became obedient to the point of death, even as terrific as it is, the death of the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he modeled for us. It's an incredible thing when you pause to just think about what Jesus went through for you and for me. We serve an amazing God. We serve a gracious and loving Savior who gave up everything that we would gain everything. And it says he came being found in a, an appearance of man. Like we looked at that word for, um, for form earlier. It means morphe, also means schema. Here now Paul uses that word schema. Where he was found in appearance as a man. His outward appearance changed. He took on something he hadn't had before. And he not only took on humanity... But he was willing to experience every facet of humanity. He was willing to go through the pain that we go through. He's willing to experience the very trauma, heartache, difficulty that you and I face. Understand that Jesus, he knows what you're experiencing, what you're going through. Never will you come to God in prayer pouring out your heart, pouring out your experiences where God's like, oh, just suck it up. Oh, just get on with it already. He knows and he sympathizes with our weakness. He's been there. He's experienced it. He knows it. And he comes in compassion 
and in grace and in love. And he comforts you, he strengthens you, he upholds you. He knows. He came in the appearance of a man. He experienced everything that you and I experienced. To be willing to take on humanity was certainly enough right there. That was all he needed to do. But the incredible act of selflessness and sacrifice, to be willing and obedient to actually die, not just die, but to face the most painful and excruciating death known to man. That's what Jesus did. That's what he models. That's the mind of Christ, being willing to submit and surrender all things to the benefit and blessing of others. Therefore, here's the mind of God now in verse 9. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. See, through Christ's submission and humiliation, it led, check this out, it led to his greatest exaltation. Jesus was highly exalted. The, uh, literally means like super exalted. It's like you just can't get any higher than that. He was exalted to the highest place, given the name which is above every name. And that's not something new to Jesus. This exaltation was something that he gave up the rights to when he came in the likeness of men. This is something he's always known. John 17, verse 4 to 5, he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The exaltation refers to Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and to his glorification, where everything that he had laid aside was gained back, but plus more. Like, he had everything restored, but more too, because now he sits eternally as the great God-man that provides salvation for all that put their faith in him. Exaltation always comes from that place of humility. And it's always something that God does. See, the lesson for us here is this. In God's economy, the way up is down. We like to go, oh, if I can just promote myself, if I can just make myself more, if I can just be seen like this in other people's eyes, and we like to try to exalt or promote ourselves. God says, no. Don't bother with that. It's futile. Humble yourself. And I'll lift you up. The word, the word says as much. Proverbs 50, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. Humility always comes first. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I love that. And he will. He'll exalt you in due time. You don't have to worry about the exaltation part. You just have to worry about the humbling part. Humble yourself, and you'll take care of the rest. I love that Jesus gave a great parable of this. It's found in Luke 14. If you want to look at that, turn over there. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. And Jesus was laying out this very scenario here of the importance of walking in that humility. He says there, 
in Luke 14, verse 7. So he told the parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and, and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives a great story. And this is something that so many people would do when they're invited to a feast. The host would have the positions around the table designated by you know their kind of stature and everything and so what oftentimes people do is like oh i want to sit at that seat that really makes people look to me and go well that must be somebody important and somebody always jump into those seats jesus don't do that take the lowest spot isn't that what jesus did when he came to this world he took the lowest position out of a bond servant, take the lowest spot. Because when you're sitting in that spot, and everybody's like, you go, oh, that must be something important. Suddenly the host comes up with the actual guest that he had in mind for that seat, and they come and say, hey, sorry, but man, you got your seats mixed up. You're not to be there. You're down way over there. Now the kid's table, you're to be down there. And you start getting off the table, and everybody's looking at you, and you're like doing that little walk of shame. Now your head's down, you're like sitting at the kid's table, right? You know, the food's inferior, everything like that. It's not as good. And you're sitting there going, man, Jesus says, though, but when you start there, so much better when you start there. And the host comes and says, ah, oh, you know what? Let's move on up here. I got a spot for you reserved here. That's what Jesus is saying to us, what he's expressing and what he modeled for us. Now, he says that the name, or he's given the name, which is above every name. Now, what, what name is that? Now, We'd all look at that and go, well, it's got to be the name Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew of Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. Certainly, we know that there's no other name by which we must be saved. It's all found in Jesus Christ. So you would not be wrong in that. But more than the name of Jesus, it seems that the emphasis is going to be put on, and we're going to see the next couple of verses, on this title of Lord. See, that links the name now to, to Yahweh to Yahweh, which was God's personal name, usually translated as Lord. When you see Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, that's the term Yahweh, God's personal name. And so here now, we're going to see there in, in verse 11 that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he's Lord, that he's overall. He's fully God. He reigns supreme. There's nothing higher than him. In fact, we see this great prophecy in Isaiah 45, verse 23, that speaks about how the Godhead, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. So we see that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, verse 11, or sorry, verse 10. Every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So here's the thing. Paul states, Jesus humbled himself. He's been exalted to the highest place. There's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. It's all found. It all culminizes in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the final stop for all of humanity. And here's what Paul says. Every knee is going to bow. There's nothing higher. 
It's the final stop for all of humanity. Every knee is going to bow. But this passage does not preach or teach universalism, as some people think. Universalism meaning that all people are going to be saved. In the end, it all works out. Everybody's forgiven. Everybody's saved. Everybody lives happily ever after. That's universalism. That's not what this teaches, and that is not a biblical doctrine. That is false. It is heresy. This is not what Paul is speaking about here. In saying that every knee is going to bow, he's stating the reality that at some point, every knee is going to bow. You got one of two choices. You can bow the knee before Jesus in this lifetime while you have breath here in this world to say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I recognize that you are Lord, that there's nothing greater than you, that only in you can I find salvation. I'm going to bow my knee. I'm going to confess that you are Lord. And all those that do in this lifetime do that unto salvation. But there's going to come a day when everybody is going to stand before God. When they breathe their last, they're going to stand before God. At that point, they're going to recognize Jesus, I rejected you my whole life. And now I stand before you recognizing that you are who you said you are. And that you are Lord. And they're going to bow the knee and confess that reality, but they're going to do so in judgment and in condemnation. Because at that point, it's going to be too late. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. This is the time that we have opportunity to make ourselves right before God. And it doesn't come through our own efforts, through our own works. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through bowing our knee now in submission and in humbleness to say, I can't earn my way to God. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't live a good enough life. I need help. I ultimately need you, Jesus. So I bow before you and I confess that you are our Lord, that there's nothing higher, greater than you, that there's no other name in heaven or on earth by which man can be saved. It's found in you only, Jesus. And all those that make that confession and in humility bow the knee are saved. And they find newness of life, life now and life eternally. But you can't put that off. You can't wait. As some people think, well, it'll all work out. If in the end, he's really God then I'll seek forgiveness. It'll be too late at that time. Paul says, you gotta, you gotta do that now, in this lifetime. Make that conscious decision and commitment to say, I'm gonna surrender myself to you, Jesus. I'm gonna put my faith in you. And if you're listening today and you have not done that, maybe you've been living your life where you've got a little bit of God, a little bit of idea of Jesus, but you've been ruling your life. And you've been, you've been the Lord <laughs> of your life. You've been calling the shots. Maybe today's the day you need to say, I'm giving it up. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to bow my knee and say, I no longer want to be the one calling the shots. I want to give it over to Jesus. I want to bow my knee. And I want to surrender to him. And I want to confess that he indeed is Lord, not me. And I can't make my way to God. I can't earn my salvation. It's only found in Jesus. That's why Jesus came and did what he did, as we've just seen in these verses. That's why he came and died on a cross. By dying on a cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and mine. He took the judgment of God so that you could be spared from it. 
and all that put their trust in Jesus as the one that saves you are saved. You become a child of God. If you've not made that commitment to Jesus, if you have not bowed the knee and called out to him to save you, would you do that today? Don't put it off. Because this is life and death we're talking about. You can delay, but it can ultimately be to your damnation. That's not what God has for you. He's got life, forgiveness of sin. Would you receive that today? Commit your life to Jesus. Simply, prayer, prayer, of saying, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. I'm going to turn from my way, and I'm going to turn to follow you. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. Be the Lord of my life. When you pray that prayer and you commit your life to Jesus, you become a child of God. And you now have the assurance of not just salvation today, but eternal life with Him in heaven. There's nothing greater. He gave up everything so that you could gain everything. Receive it today. It's free. Call it to Him and receive that gift of salvation today. Worship team, would you come up? Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we come humbly before you and we thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, you came and surrendered all, coming in the form of a, a servant, a slave. Submitting yourself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the worst kind possible. You willingly gave up everything simply to spare us, to save us, and to give us hope and life in you. I pray that everybody sitting in this room, everybody watching online right now, I pray that everybody would have the assurance of life and forgiveness in you. If, if anybody is watching or listening right now that does not have that assurance, that does not know that, Lord, would you just work in their heart right now and draw them to you. And may they yield and surrender to you. And may they give up everything in order to receive you as their Lord and Savior. And may they find today life, peace, joy that only you can bring. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your life. Thank you for giving us life in you. Lord, may we live it all to the glory of God as this passage ends. All this is accomplished to the glory of God. So may we live now all for your glory. We praise you now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this song in closing.